Okay, just hit the record button. Gosh darn it. I had a super long-winded intro for this particular podcast all recorded, ready to go. And I just said, ah, oh, scrap it. Let's just let's just do it. Let's just go to Dave 42. So I've got this guy, this character, this amazing person who has come into my life, come into my small group of truth seekers life. Um, all the links will be in the show notes where you can participate um, within the communities around uh, Dave42. Um, he's a part of uh, Telegram. He's on the Broken Anthem chat. He's on the Indecent Disclosure chat. Once in a while, I pull him into the Conservative Hippie chat um, and the Spirit of Admitos chat. He's all over there, all over it, and he's capable of being uh, quite the multitasker and speaking with many people at the same time. And I have had the privilege of having many hours spent with Dave42. I call him a genius. He calls himself polymath. And I, I dub the phrase, or I like to say, uh, he's the Forrest Gump of military civilian intelligence in the fact that in this guy's long career, in his long life, he has been at very interesting points in history, surrounded and tangential to interesting characters in our history. I'm going to try to pull some of that out of him today. I'm going to create a two-part series for this particular podcast. We recorded, and we went about two hours, so I'm going to break this up into two separate podcasts and release it. Um, No no show intro. Let's just go. Let's just roll. Uh, please check the show notes, theconservativehippie.com. This is episode 95. Um, check the show notes there for the links, um, sponsorship, all that jazz. But let's just go right to the interview. All right. I am live and direct with Dave42 um, in the... Uh, whereabouts in Florida are you, Dave? Are you mid-Florida, northern Florida, panhandle Florida? Whereabouts in Florida are you? I'm on the very south end of Palm Beach. Okay. So as far south as you can go on the Palm Beach, that's where I'm at. Well, thank you so much for joining me today in your in your late evening um, I really appreciate you not only sharing yourself with my small group of truth seekers and patriots, but sharing yourself with the world. Um, it, you've been a blessing um, in my life, and I know a lot of people's lives um, since you've come on the scene. It's hard to keep up with you sometimes uh, in, in all of the research I have to do just to understand what the heck you're talking about. So I'm going to try to do the best I can in this interview for people that are familiar with Dave42. I know I'm going to leave a lot out, and I'm just going to do the best I can. But let's let's start off with this. You used a word that I don't I don't quite. It's not a it's not a, a word you hear often in modern vernacular. You described yourself as polymath. Can you tell everybody what the heck does that mean? Why don't you just call yourself a genius? Well, uh, genius has a connotation of uh, universal knowledge or some kind of special power. Um, actually, uh, my forte is in looking at complex systems and being able to see mathematic patterns behind it. So that leads into engineering very easily, uh, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, uh, computer science, and uh, physics. So um, 
one of the advantages I have, I'm not um, a photographic memory. I can read something, retain about 85% of it. If I concentrate real hard, I can remember the page numbers and the paragraph location, but not the actual context of the paragraph. I have to go back and read it sometimes. Now, with uh, this type of a, a weird brain, it... Uh, it gives me the ability to do things like pick up a book on thermojet engines, comprehend it, and then just go out and build one, uh, which I've done several times. Um, the same thing with uh, motorsports. I'm a big, ad big advocate of building uh, very fast, very powerful engines. Uh, last uh, major engine I built was a 1,050 horsepower out of a five liter Ford which is near to impossible to do, but I did it. Another uh, engine I'm working on currently is a, uh, a little 4.3 liter six cylinder, which will be in the 700 horsepower range. So it's the understanding of the thermodynamics, the mechanical stresses, and just inherently knowing when I read something, I pick up on the experience of the writer. So um, it's very cool because it's almost like prescient in that, um, one of the fun things is, is that I'm acoustically oriented as well. So I'm able to listen to the sound of a mechanical device, visualize in my head what is happening in that mechanical device and find flaws in it in that way. And that's kind of it. I understand what I'm doing. I can see what's wrong. And is that that makes any sense to anybody. So it's given me a unique opportunity in that I can understand very complex systems and I pick up contracts, um, basically consulting type contracts to solve uh, issues. They may be personnel issues, they may be technical issues, uh, they may be procedural issues. Um, I've done a lot of work for a lot of companies doing this over the years. Now let's, let me go back very far in history. We've talked about your youth. And basically, you pointed out that you were selected at a very young age and almost thrown into this um, special schooling, the special testing. Um, can you explain how that came about? Sure. Um, I was a misfit. Uh, got into fights with other kids all the time. Uh, they kept pushing me forward in school. They would check, and I, I had uh, figured out what was going on. So starting in preschool, they jumped me to first grade. And then in first grade, three months in, they jumped me to third grade. And I was a big kid. You know, I was unusually large for my age. So I was the same size as third graders. But emotionally, I was still a kindergartner. You know, I was not emotionally mature. So kids would pick on me and I would swing. You know, it was just basically I was getting in fights all the time. So somebody had the wise idea to figure out if I was retarded. In fact, they, they figured that I was retarded. This is how things went back then. Uh, they went ahead and gave me IQ tests, and after the sixth session, I realized that they were testing me way beyond what normal stuff was. So at that time, I had a 10th grade reading level, and they went ahead and called a, a school in Philadelphia and arranged for me uh, to attend that school. And that was from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, a uh, Catholic school, and uh, I went off to school there. Now, a sister noticed that I had an aptitude for mathematics, and she was friends with uh, a doctor who was running the polio vaccine record-keeping over at Wistar Institute, uh, Penn State. 
and they had a computer then. This is 1968. So when I say computer, we're talking about a deck, a very, very old machine. Uh, didn't even have a hard drive. It still had uh, a magnetic uh, array and it had um, mercury tubes for for memory. Uh, very old fashioned stuff, you know, 1950s type stuff. Now, I got two hours a week at six years old on that machine to learn the principles behind it and to learn the mathematics. I got to sit in on all the classes and everything. And um, by the time I was 14 years old, I had finished all of the curriculum that the archdiocese had to offer. And I was too young to be ordained as a priest. Um, so they basically jettisoned me. And I had to return back uh, to where my father had moved to, which was in Pittsburgh. And uh, after a couple of days, um, he got pissed off at me and threw me out of the house. And uh, I was a wise-ass kid. I wasn't, you know, by no means was it his fault. I mean, I was literally a wild kid. Yeah, I can imagine but, um, uh, a, a lot of uh, young males um, go through that stage where they think they know everything. Um, imagine knowing everything and still being emotionally <laughs> immature. And it, it, yeah. it just it, it must have coupled and doubled on top of it. You must have had quite an attitude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was going through puberty. So I was really into girls and, um, ended up, uh, I went over to Jones and Lachlan. I had a little bit of money in the bank and was able to enroll at Carnegie Mellon. Um, after the first, um, semester I was actually broke. Uh, so working at the steel mill, I worked midnight to eight. And I discovered that uh, Carnegie Mellon had a reciprocity with Cleveland State. So I would leave Jones and Lachlan at 8 o'clock in the morning, drive like a maniac, make it to Cleveland by 9.30 each day, get in the class, sit through class, 4 o'clock, go back down to Pittsburgh and go to sleep for a couple hours and then go back to the mill at midnight every night. I did that for three years. So, no, you, so you're uh, building your, you've told me these stories about you building your body, essentially, in your formative years of um, your body coming to, into its own, and you were slinging steel and, and doing all this crazy yeah, physical work. <laughs> what, what, what you're saying is, at the same time, you were also building your brain as well. So no, it wasn't yeah, just the physical I, building. I was, taking, I was taking particle physics, so my brain was completely occupied. The steel mill was extremely boring. Uh, extremely dangerous. And most of the time, uh, if there wasn't anything broken, uh, you would be down on sorting tables, sorting out half inch plates uh, that had defects. So a uh, half inch plate of steel, it's about 40 pounds per square inch uh, per square foot, uh, one inch thick square foot. So um, you're flipping with two men uh, between four and 800 pounds on each sheet. And you do that all night long, you know, then you, I would go sit in class and ache and then sleep it off and then go back the next night. So uh, at that time, I went to 270 with a 34-inch waist. I was able to lift 900 pounds, bench press 575. And, you know, that's being, that's pretty freaking big. Um, my BMI at that time was about 10%. And so I got a, had a little tiny belly on me, not much, but... Um, I couldn't find clothes to fit. You know, I was a pretty big guy, uh, six, two at that weight. You're, you're pretty much a meatball. Now, um, 
what I was studying was particle physics. So my intent was to become a nuclear controller. Uh, 1979, uh, Carter put a moratorium on new nuclear power plant construction. Uh, there were 5,000 students studying at that time and only 81 nuclear power plant sites. So opportunity for future employment was zero. Um, you know, I'm the youngest guy in the graduating. So I split and on my 17th birthday, I went ahead and joined United States Marine Corps. Okay. And there, and there you are. Now you're into the DOD, you're into um, the military. Um, and I want to, I want to kind of, it's going to be a, a fast forward, but at the same time, it'll, it'll help you get into this story a little bit more because I'm very familiar with a, a woman named Tori Says, uh, Terpshore Mares, um, and a lot of people in my truth-seeking community uh, are big fans of hers. You might call them followers, but I just pay great attention to what she says. And she uh, displays an ability to recall things. She it displays an ability to understand things um, that that rival most humans that I've come across. And she says, uh, when she speaks about this uh, classified nature of, of her life, she says, people like me don't exist. And here you are, you've come into our lives, and you resonate with that. Can you can you bring me oh, yeah. can you bring me forward with this now that you're now that you're coming of age and you're in the military officially? How does someone um, stop existing? Can you help us well, understand this? Uh, when I graduated basic, um, they tell you what your MOS is, your uh, mode of service, and uh, this is before you go off to training. So. Uh, it's kind of like a job interview, different groups. Uh, most of the guys, they just select. They never get to meet anybody. A um, couple per couple people, they pull off to the side. And you go in and you sit, and there's three guys there, and uh, they're pushing the job. Now, in my shock was my mentor back from Wistar was actually sitting across the table from me. So I had known this guy uh, from six years old to, you know, basically 14, and he never said a word. And here he was offering me a job with one of the alphabet agencies. And I read the job criteria and, and the, uh, the job offer, and I pushed back on it. Absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. Um, that resulted in them getting up and walking away very quickly. Um, Another group of guys that were really slovenly. Uh, I was, I was actually amazed that they were in uniform. I mean, shirt tails out, you know, just slovenly. And uh, those two guys sat down and they talked to me for about twenty-five minutes, and um, they offered me the job, and I went ahead and signed up. Now, uh, at that point, um, I was discharged from service. Uh, service records were sealed. My birth records were sealed and I disappeared from 1980 to 1993. Now, during that period, I was actively gainfully employed by second and third tier contractors. So I would work for, uh, let's say, um, oh, uh, General Motors, for instance. Um, there would be uh, projects where they were bringing military technology into General Motors 
such as the ECU-66, which is the controller that was used in the early uh, 1980s on the high-end cars. That controller was actually a flight controller out of one of the jet aircraft. So bringing that technology into uh, the use in automobile was ideal for me. I loved it. It was a great job. Then you would get called out and you would have to go do work uh, from time to time. Now, my specific MOS was called 307, and 307 is telecom control. So you facilitate the connection of secure phone lines, uh, secure communication routes uh, between two points. In maintaining that connection, you verify the source and the validity of the source and the destination and the requirement for that person to see that information. Um, kind of a weird job. Um, spent first three years at um, in Virginia at a place called Greenbrier, uh, Greenbrier Hotel. It was one of the, quote, TV repairmen. And I watched um, loop length on, uh, on telecom lines between uh, con Congress and facilities in the United States. And really super boring job, fun place, super boring job. But um, I would get sent out different places over the years. Now, um, I did work in Central and South America. Uh, some of the work that I did was in assisting uh, the mining of Managua Bay during the conflict with Nicaragua. Uh, we had sold the Nicaraguan uh, government uh, a small fleet of World War II ships. And when the government flipped, it went uh, basically full on communist and we had to disable those weapons. Um, so what they did was they, I personally did not do this. They mined the bay. Uh, I provided uh, four C's, which is uh, communications control and command um, in the area. So you blanket existing comp, uh, communication systems, which there it was just telephone and local radio, and you provide communications for your forces. Did that there. Uh, we did several things down into Medellin area of Colombia. Uh, got to know a lot of people down there, very good people. Uh, we worked all the way down Ecuador. Uh, we were fighting FARC in Ecuador. Uh, coming back up north, um, there were things that went on in Venezuela. Um, the whole time I was the IT guy. I was never like an active combatant um, because you go in a few days ahead of time and come out right after everybody's gone, you tend to be a target. And I did get wounded. Um, I was hit uh, five times, three times center of mass, um, left arm right above the elbow, three across the chest and one in the left knee. Uh, the left knee broke my hip, my pelvis, uh, separated my ACL. Um, the two on the left side, uh, shattered, it actually crushed my, uh, my kidney. I had a, uh, a vest on and the vest caught the rounds, but the impact actually crushed the kidney. Uh, the one on the right severed, uh, the kidney and it actually, uh, I lost two thirds of that kidney as well. So from 1980 to, uh, 2017, I was living with a third of a kidney with no issues. So those wounds have come back to haunt me. Um, I've had some issues and I, I've been in uh, K-12 
kidney failure, uh, end stage kidney failure uh, since 2008 and in protein wasting since 2017. So physically, I'm down to 235 now. Um, I'm at a BMI of 7%, uh, 7% BMI. So I'm pretty fit. Uh, I'll be 60 here in two weeks. And uh, I'm still benching 400 pounds now. And I'm able to deadlift 700. I got my knee fixed, got my hip fixed. So physically, I'm torn up. Uh, lots of pain. Uh, but I'm still here. And uh, they declared me terminal in 2017. And it's been a, a real bitch because you, you basically, I can contract. I have to do short period contracts. I can't do any extended. Uh, it's impossible to get key man insurance. It's impossible to get health insurance. So That's that very, brings me up to. It's, it's very interesting. And, and I want to go back to that. People like me don't exist because we've talked an awful lot. So I know some of the background behind some of these stories. For example, um, you, didn't, you didn't mention uh, the hunt for Pablo Escobar. Um, and you were an IT guy in charge of uh, communications in that, yeah. in that big event. I've, I've, you, it was either so I, the, uh, I can't remember. I mentioned the Medellin, the Medellin and the Colombian, the, uh, uh, what was going on down there is that you had uh, a group of uh, fairly well-off families that decided that uh, uh, farming wasn't going to be their mainstay and that export of cocaine to the United States would be their mainstay. And there were willing recipients here in the United States. Uh, I won't go into all the names. Everybody knows you know, um, the people that were involved in that. Um, from that end, the Colombian government uh, actually desired to stop it because it was causing um, a loss of control of the government. In other words, the government wasn't able to tell these people to do anything or to maintain the safety and security of the people in the town. These, they were out of control, literally out of control. So um, a lot of the smugglers were revolutionaries, uh, you know, the Che Guevara types. And um, you had Sandinistas coming up through there. It was a real mess. So for the United States, the interest was in preventing the Soviet incursion through the Sandinistas and through the, uh, the indigenous communists that had been uh, uh, Marxist trained from Cuba through the you know, Che Guevara's network that was down there. And that's FARC and uh, FARQ. I don't know if people are aware of that or not. But yes, we we had we had some nasty people down there. Now, um, I provided communications so that they were able to uh, circumvent their monitoring and also uh, pinpoint where he would be at specific times, so that they were able to gain enough evidence to get warrant in the Columbia and to actually uh, prosecute that warrant and. Uh, they did so successfully and they took the guy out. Uh, it was a hell of a firefight, um, you know, running from rooftop to rooftop. It was, it, it could have been handled better I, in my opinion, but it was necessary for uh, how many people were on the payroll in Medellin and how many people throughout Colombia were, were compromised by it. Now um, for the United States, the interest was that um, this was a, a facilitator of many 
um, leftist and Marxist organizations here in the United States. That that money was being used uh, by agencies here, uh, compromised people here, and it was being used for nefarious purposes. And it was a shitload of money. Yeah. Yeah, and if anybody wants to read, I lived through that. Uh, there was an interesting book I read. I believe it was the title of it is Killing Pablo, um, which discusses um, kind of the communications that Dave is talking about um, and the hunt um, that went on for Pablo Escobar. Um, but what what I didn't really get into is the the people like me don't exist. And you've told me stories before about how you were almost— forced into this lifestyle, this second and third tier contractor lifestyle, because, yeah, well, because you had your you identity. No identity. Yeah. You, you literally, uh, I did not have a, a driver's license, a bank account, anything until September of 1993. Now living you're getting a paycheck, right? You go over to the cash office, you get the cash, you're fine. Okay. But any transport, um, back then you could get on a plane without having even any identification whatsoever. You could just, you know, buy a ticket and fly. Um, driving from state to state, I would get pulled over, arrested, taken in. I would give them access. They would call and I would get released and, you know, thank you. Go on your way. No record. So that aspect of it kind of really sucked. Um, I had one incident that was kind of terrifying to me. Um, I had a toolbox in the back of a pickup truck and uh, toolbox fell out. And the person who hit the toolbox was a dispatch for the sheriff on her way to work. And she was driving her brand new car and it totaled her car and she was injured. Now uh, I showed up to court figuring you know, I'm going to jail for this. I had no driver's license, no insurance, nothing. And the judge was really cool about it. She said, no, the, the thing came to a stop in the road and she hit the thing in the road. So it was a road hazard, not my, not my fault. Okay. So uh, at that point, um, I had already met my wife and we were, had uh, purchased the house together and we were living together. And uh, uh, she demanded that before we got married, I got my my driver's license, got my identity. So that's where I came out of it. But um, working for companies like Motorola or, or uh, Panda or uh, uh, any of the, the smaller little companies, there, there are hundreds of small companies in areas where there's uh, work going on, military work going on, uh, that supply those um, access points. So you kind of bounce from place to place as uh, your expertise is needed. Um, one of the cool things was is half my paycheck came from DARPA, so it was easy to get jobs. Uh, they would cover half my payroll, so I never had to really negotiate costs or, or pay or anything like that. Um, very, very informal, uh, almost mind-bogglingly informal. Now, um, when I worked for Motorola, it was my title was guru. And I was self-directed. I didn't have a boss at Motorola. So uh, the necessity uh, was that I publish at least nine papers per year and that I have, uh, I'm have i assigned to some work at some point every month. 
In other words, I had to cover my payroll on tasks that I was helping on. So um, there were a lot of things that uh, we got to do. One of the most exciting things we got to do, uh, you may want to segue into this, was um, that we actually uh, started looking at uh, the frequency of the machine breakdowns. We had a historical record for 5,000 machines uh, all throughout the Motorola network. Uh, Motorola was a huge uh, government services technology provider. Uh, all the machines were networked together so that we had uh, log records of repair, breakdown, uh, what broke, when it broke, so on. And um, I was looking at those records, looking to see if there was some way to improve the downtime and found that uh, I could see a pattern. And seeing the rhythmic patterns of machine failures, I was able to write a little piece of software that uh, predicted um, the trend. So you would have, uh, think of it like a biorhythm or a, uh, a sinusoidal wave of when a machine part would wear out or break. And you could plot that out into the future and predict when there would be a failure point at some point in the future. Now, I organized an automated system to order parts of the parts that were expected to break. And this caused a shitstorm because um, we were doing government contracts and uh, they suspected I was sabotaging machines because I knew what parts would break before they broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was not pleasant. Um, so three months of intense, you know, investigation, uh, you know, everybody looking at everything I'd ever done. And uh, what they came up with was that, yeah, I was actually predicting when shit would fail scientifically and actuarially. And um, they threw that over to something called total informational awareness. It was a new group under Computer Incident Advisory Council. Um, Computer Incident Advisory Council was part of the Department of Energy's um, strategic uh, network system, um, connected all the colleges and so on and so forth. Now, this was a windfall for me because back at Wistar, um, I had sat in on the communications back in 68 through 74 when they were setting up Milnet and ARPANET. So I got to sit in and listen to the lectures. Um, uh, Paul Barron from RAND, uh, Karen, the, the woman who actually wrote uh, TCPIP, she was the, the lead uh, developer on it. And a lot of people don't know there's a lot of stuff inside of TCPIP that's simply unused. Uh, the protocols has uh, more capability than what's currently being uh, facilitated by uh, the ISP and the telco companies. So we will skip something there then, because you, you started by saying it was a good segue, and then here you go, you got us all the way to it. One of the things that you talk about um, in these discussions we have on Telegram, usually on the Indecent Disclosure channel, uh, my friend Emily Johnson's channel, and you talk about these future systems. Uh, we're always talking about building parallel systems, um, just, just the dangers that we're having these days and the need to build parallel structures alongside the, the corrupt system that is established right now. And one of these systems you talk about, and I've heard it a few times, still confuses me, so I want to hear it again, um, is, is, a communica is 
is a te- a way to use technology and communications between each other. You're saying that we can build something on top of what exists that isn't used now. Is is that what you were just referring to? Can you explain this yes. this top level system that we'll be able to use that exists now, but it's not in use and they can't get rid of it because then they'd have to burn their own system. Help us understand this a little bit better. Sure. Uh, there were three uh, message routing protocols that were actually embedded in the TCP IP, Transfer Connect Protocol, Internet Protocol. The uh, One of the protocols actually was designed in the case that the Internet had been taken over by uh, a foreign aggressor uh, or domestic um, uh, despotism. Now, uh, the way that it, uh, the way that typical messaging functions is that your location is tracked by your ISP and communications are relayed to you. Now, uh, that uh, that gives the ISP a tremendous amount of power because it can curtail the communications coming to you. It can censor your communications go out. It can do inline injection into your communications. So you can go to a website and content on that website is not coming from the author of the website but from someone in the middle. Um, Most of the fraud, most of the stuff that's going on on the internet is being facilitated by this first type of messaging. The reason why that first type of messaging became so popular was in the minds of the telco providers, they were set up to bill per minute. Everything was surrounding uh, the switching in telco was a per minute billing system. So, as the internet came in, you would pay um, per minute for your internet use. Um, AOL and, and CompuServe were a couple of the first BBS systems that people first joined onto, and then they became aware of the internet. Now, the ability to track a socket from your location to a specific website, the website sends you the information, it transfers hands-off through the various different subnet levels, the ISPs, the server ISP, all the way back down to you, and you receive the data supposedly from that website. Now, when you send something, you're sending that to some website. And it doesn't matter if you're using an app or anything like that. Now, underneath that, the ISP, in order to terminate your phone call, has to know where you are on his network. So he tracks where you are on his network through both the cable modem system and the cellular phone system. That's a dynamic tracking. And your your GOIP can be discerned from the uh, consolidated call record, CRD, of the telco. So even though your phone is not ringing, it is communicating to the cell towers. Now, it's a simpler matter to track the packet, the location of the packet, rather than the location of the consumer. For billing purposes, it's better to track the location of the consumer because you can charge for every word that comes from a website, for instance. Think of it as a word. So they charge per megabyte on how many megabytes or gigabytes that the website uploads to you, and you get charged for every megabyte and gigabyte that you download from it. 
This is your bandwidth that you pay for, your, your broadband bandwidth charges. Now, people say, but I have unlimited. You're not unlimited. You get throttled after a certain point. There's a bunch of constrictions to that. Um, most people have no idea uh, how the data actually gets to them. Now, when that data is coming to you, that message has an identifier. That message location can also be tracked. It is currently not being tracked. So the message comes from a web server, comes directly to you. Now, people may be familiar with Tor, which is a torrent protocol for transferring files from person to person. That system is the type of system that keeps track of the individual piece of a file, a message, a piece of the message. And there might be a million people with a piece of that message. The novelty of this is that you're able to actually transfer it from one person to the other. You're not going to a server and getting it from a server. You're getting it from your neighbor. Now, the combination of these two messaging protocols, the fact that we can track where the location of every phone is on the network. I'm not talking about physical location. I'm talking about network addressing. And we can track what packets they've had. We can relay those packets to the next person close to them. So instead of it coming from the server, it's coming from the guy sitting next to you. Now, what this does is the more people who join, the more people who are looking at the same website, the faster that data gets to you because it's coming from a local source. Now, tracking that from the very top end down is how we accomplish a secure network. So each individual message is uniquely encrypted and the permission to access that is uniquely tracked per person. And that happens at the top level domain. Now, because we're, to, we're, we're not going to police everything, what we've chosen to do was actually create a Forex account and do sub accounts under the Forex account. So your certificate that allows you to access something is actually your Forex account on our sub account or your sub account on our account. So in the event that somebody steals from you, takes data from you, does something uh, unsavory or unwanted, it becomes a local crime and a federal crime. So we're not we don't have to prosecute it. Now this differs from other security methods because the onus to provide security is now placed on our law enforcement rather than on the company itself. So in our situation, we're able to allow that account to be used for commerce. So you're able to trade on the same level as a bank trades. You're able to create securities, create bonds, do all the things that a bank normally does or a stockbroker normally does. We're in a private membership. You can sell between each other, no problem. It's not a fair market value because it's a closed market. It's a private membership. So transactions are not taxable. You're not using U.S. currency. You're not using foreign currencies. The Forex exchange does a settlement coming in and out. So if you have an account balance in your account, you're able to go to the grocery store, scan a QRP or use your debit card and buy groceries with it. You're also able to buy tires in Vietnam and have them shipped over here at a fraction of the cost or buy products from India, uh, clove oil from India, 
or any other country on the earth. And you're able to sell your products and services to any other country on earth. Okay. So this creates. Okay. So let me interrupt because I, I I just, I I sense I've got to interrupt for the audience. Um, And I've heard this (laughs) and I've heard this and I've talked to you. So I'm understanding the concepts a little better, but we went from, a communications platform, and you're doing a really good job of explaining that. Um, we didn't include that language where top-level domain where you put in the website and then there's like a, a dot and something else. So anyways, we are talking about communications, and then all of a sudden we are talking about the membership and Forex and consumers being able to trade back and forth. How do you get both of those two things together? I thought we were talking about communication. It's the same mechanism. It's the same mechanism, the same way that you use Apple Pay Tap right now, where you take your phone in and you pay with your phone. Okay. Exactly the same mechanism, except that you are in the ownership of the company that organizes the whole thing. And how is... As a member, yeah, we're not selling it to the general public. And how is this done? I th- that's where I do, I think we're still missing that explanation in this conversation is how this is done with existing technology um, on top of the infrastructure that's already built. Okay, this is currently in use. When you uh, have a Facebook account, for instance, and this is why Facebook was pushing the idea of a digital currency that they uh, bandied about for a little bit. Uh, Facebook makes so much money off the government that they can't do a competitive currency. Uh, that's the truth. They get like $4 billion a year on GAO. Um, so, uh, you know, they provide internet services to different agencies. Well, in a, in a private network, in a, uh, a private system, the system itself is able to be on par with um any bank, pick a local savings and loan. That'll be the first first step level. So banks currently have something called a SWIFT. That's a private network. It's, that's all it is. It's a private network. So SWIFT runs on top of the internet. It has a different protocol. And it allows them to transfer account balances from bank to bank. There's no physical money being transferred with SWIFT. It's literally just an account balance. And in the case of foreign exchange, they either use a Forex account to make the exchange or they use a LIBOR account, London Bank of, uh, was it London Bank of Reconciliation or something like that. They do the actual uh, cash out uh, between the different parties. So the people separating their bank account from networking is, it's kind of like, it's the same thing now. It has been the same thing for a long time. Again, in the case of Facebook, when you get an update on Facebook, uh, most people will see that their bandwidth will go up if Facebook is installed on their on their device. Um, the reason is, is Facebook is using your memory, your processing speed, and your storage to transfer files to other people. Um, you don't have any control over that. You have no say in it, and they do it. Ad hoc. Well, yeah, you were, tell, you were telling me something like when you sign up, um, you 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 give away like ten percent of your of your memory with with an app. There was some exp- explanation you were giving the other day. Yeah, um, actually, the ten percent thing comes from general uh, general usage. Any any website uh, legally can use ten percent of your 
Um, I'm talking about the actual website. Can use 10% of your processing power. Uh, can store up to three gigabytes of data on your machine, and uh, there is no limit to the amount of data it can transfer back and forth. So, for instance, if you use a website like DLive, which is just a website, uh, or Facebook, which is just a website, or Twitter, which is just a different type of website, all these things are using your systems. Now, in the case of DLive, they have a currency built into DLive. It's a, a blockchain technology, and they use your phone or your device that's on there to actually mine the pool to reconcile transactions on the blockchain. Uh, same thing for uh, the Brave browser, um, which is a very nice browser. It's, it's like Chrome without the, the spying. And they use your processing time when Brave is open to process their coins. They have a wallet associated with it. And they have a currency associated with it. This is common occurrence. The problem is, is that it's not public. It's being done behind your back with your energy and your cost without your benefit. And what we're doing is actually flipping that so that you have the benefit. You are the recipient of the big dollar, so to speak. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very communal. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very hippie concept. I, I'm down with it. Like where, where, where I give. I've never been called a hippie. <laughs> I give, I give my ten percent, but I also uh, enjoy the benefits of the ten percent as well. You know, it's a, we're all in this together. Right. Well, I tell and you, it's, uh, the wonderful thing about this is that we're not using a blockchain technology. Uh, blockchain. Uh, my experience with blockchain was that we wrote. When I say we, it was a group of 40 of us uh, met up in Miami and uh, we helped in the early stages of developing exchange software for uh, the current exchanges around the world uh, using blockchain and the pooling software. Now, my contribution was the fail to band module for um, the pooling software so that if you have somebody trying to do a DDoS, it will uh, distributed denial of service it will actually stop that IP from being able to communicate. Now, we discovered some things back during blockchain that I'll, I'll leave off from this discussion, but um, there are inherent errors in the logic concerning the mathematics of the system. It is not secure, it has not been secure for a very long time. Now, the investors who were involved in it were very much, um, nefarious types. They were primarily offshore casinos looking for a way to be able to uh, pay their customers and uh, adult content sites looking for a way to collect when they could not collect on normal billing here in the United States. So um, plus you had guys that were doing things like Silk Road and things like that. Those were uh, people say dark web. Well, you know, dark web is just the protocol. Um, the dark web was a private list that was handed between people that would give them access points to where a existing torrent network was. And that could be any machine anywhere. Most of them were uh, office machines and reputable businesses. They had no clue that something was running in the background. Uh, same thing occurred with LimeWire and with uh, Napster. Uh, those protocols are the same protocols I'm talking about. So that ability to share from person to person was absolutely demonized 
uh, I mean, the Recording Institute of America went hog wild crazy um, prosecuting everybody they could pro possibly prosecute uh, for using something that was actually part of the internet. And they tried to make it into an instrument of crime and, and vilify it. Uh, they have people, you know, scared to death of the dark web. They don't even know what it is. Yeah. Dark web is just a, a, a type of communications platform that is not controlled by the powers that be. And that's that's one of the better ways that you've um, explained it that helps me conceptualize what you're talking about, this this future hippie community, uh, this membership, um, is Napster. Because for those of us Gen X that kind of lived through Napster, we all uh, remember how much they jumped on it. But if you take away that whole argument of um, whose rights are they ownership of the art, just take that out of it and think of the file sharing ability. Um, that's what Dave is talking about is is using these Tor systems, these these person to person systems to build out a network um, that is separate from um, the current system. Is that is that an okay yeah, way of explaining it? it? Yeah, it actually has a formal name and it has RFCs, uh, requests for comments in the World Wide Web Consortium, the, the W3C. Um, it's uh, called I2P. It has a name. Uh, so while we're still stuck on Internet Protocol and we're discussing Internet Protocol version 4 versus, versus version 6, there's an Internet 2 protocol. That was built in from all the way back. It was first conceived in the in the 1950s. It's been part of the code base since 1968, and it's implemented in every machine on every device. And it doesn't require you to download extra software or install an app or anything like that. The way that you use this is simply by adding an extra TLD. So a TLD is a top-level domain. You type in .com, you're asking servers at the root level to route you to where the .com registry has the name of the, the domain server, has the name of the website location. Now, if you add .com, .rtld, and that TLD is not public yet, we'll have it here soon. Uh, when you add RTLD to it, that website doesn't come directly from that server. It comes from every other person on the network. Every other person on the network grabs a piece of that website and relays it to you. So the, the speed of resolution is half the time that it takes for a normal website to load. So a normal website times out in uh, 240 milliseconds, so a quarter of a second. When we did testing on this with 300,000 users, uh, we saw uh, the maximum time was 128 milliseconds. So literally an eighth of a second for a website to load. Now, this also enables us something that's unknown about blockchain technologies is that when you're dealing with an exchange, you're dealing with somebody who is loaning you the money and then making the adjustment on your on your ledger entry in the blockchain. Now that time that it takes for that entry to reconcile might be a day, it might be a month. The more people 
that have Bitcoins or any blockchain, the longer it takes to reconcile a change to the ledger. Now, we avoided that whole encrypted ledger thing. We have a public ledger that's broadcast. It's continuously loop broadcast. Your identity is protected. Each transaction, you have a unique identifier. And only you have that identifier. So reconciliation takes four milliseconds. Update to the ledger takes 128 milliseconds. So there's no need for a third party to loan you money to do you become the exchange. So each and every person, and this was what our original intent was in 2007 with the exchange software for blockchain, was to create a circumstance where everyone was their own exchange. Everyone had their own coin, not one coin to replace the, the US dollar. That's That became what it is now, is this idea of an alternate same thing that everybody else is doing. We intended for everybody to have the ability to generate their own store value and to generate their own trading mechanism. And unfortunately, um, the funders of the system had intent that was not congruent with what our intents were originally. So uh, there was a large group of us who walked away from it in 2013. At the time we were making uh, 36 coins per day. So 36 Bitcoins per day. And all that money was cashed out. We all took our money and went our separate ways. Hmm. Are you, uh, how are you doing hanging with me? Well, we have, I just realized we've got I'm so great. many cool things to talk about. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. How's your voice? How are you doing an hour in? I'm, I'm fine. Okay, I can great. go as long as you need. Okay, great. And you can cut and paste and do whatever you want here. Well, what I want to, I, what we kind of skipped past when we were talking about people like me don't exist. And isn't it amazing as much as we've talked? And uh, let me ask you this. Who coined the phrase? Was it you or was it me that called you the Forrest Gump of military civilian intelligence? I think it was it, you. Yeah, it I think it was me. Yeah. That's pretty funny, and, and yeah. I just and I just love it. But... At first, I took it as uh, first I took it as like you know, Forrest Gump's a dumbass. But, <laughs> you know, uh, then I caught on to what you were actually saying is that it, it's just sheer coincidental that you end up around things happening, and you're aware of things happening, uh, even though you were, you may not have been directly involved in it. You know? Yeah, kind of like the whole. It's just weird that um, we've ha we've been going an hour and we haven't even talked about some of the uh, some of the coincidental uh, moments in history that you've been a part of. But but let's keep going. Uh, one thing that I don't know that I'm interested in, uh, you shared a patch with me recently via DM. Um, it was a two thousand year two thousand uh, National Reconnaissance Office patch. We own the night. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came about that patch and the work you did? Um, while I was with uh, Motorola, we developed uh, systems. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's no no longer classified. Um, uh, Iridium sixty six was sixty six satellites that were launched. Um, those satellites uh, circumnavigate the, uh, the Earth. Um, they have gravitational sensors, they have uh, uh, communications equipment, and they provide a, um, a distributed network of communication satellites. It's very similar to what uh, Starlink is supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, Starlink yeah. has much greater density. Uh, 
they have much greater bandwidth. Um, at the time when we launched uh, Iridium, it was uh, only 500 baud, so 500 characters uh, per second. So, um, you know, that's pretty miserable by today's standards, but uh, it enabled us to create something called Global Communicator, which was two-way paging that was used by all of our special forces. So um, in that, there were... Um, uh, there is a division called the National Reconnaissance Office that's now been absorbed into Space Force. And uh, my association with them has continued through the years uh, only for the fact of uh, uh, odd technical expertise. Uh, there are some things that I know about that I can do that uh, most people struggle with. So, and I demonstrate them you know, from time to time and show people what to do when it's appropriate. Now, um, these are not you know, spy versus spy stuff. It's literally like understanding how uh, D-channel communications work on cellular networks and how uh, the upper layer, uh, if you think of a sphere going out from an antenna, uh, that sphere extends out uh, into space and uh, cellular communications on the ground ignore the altitude. Uh, you can falsify the altitude and use connection into space. Uh, just as an example of how to uh, facilitate things. Or you can fraudulently report your altitude and be in space or be you know, in a plane and still use the cellular networks. That's how the in-flight phones work on aircraft. Now, um, this kind of information is uh, confidential. It's not top secret by any means. So um, you don't tell the public you know how to do it, but from time to time, there are different groups of people who are in need of that type of uh, communications ability. And I'll pick up a contract and it's verified and everything, and I'll, I'll take care of it. You know, I actually will build hardware for it. So, uh, in doing so, I've had some interesting things that I've done. Um, you know, we set up um, uh, the fiber from Karachi uh, to Pesh, uh, Peshawar, Pakistan. Uh, that provided the internet to Bagram, uh, Kabul, and Jalalabad, you know, during the Afghan circumstance. Um, we had telephone lines running in 84 countries. Yeah, these are surreptitious telephone lines. So um, the satellite part of it, um, I'm not sure how much of Hermes 2 is um, public, but uh, we did work on our Hermes 2. Uh, we did work on uh, something called NRL PRAM. Um, primarily, uh, the only work I did was in developing uh, graphene plates for the uh, uh, heat sinks on those devices. Now, each one of those devices is a one kilowatt microwave laser. Uh, has a, at ground level, a 35 millimeter aperture with a 10 millimeter focal point. Um, it puts one kilowatt into a 10 millimeter circle. Um, they're solar powered. Uh, they collect energy uh, in the Earth's outer atmosphere and direct it down to the ground. Now, they're, they've been in flight now for three years, and uh, we did the early development on those uh, circa 2000-2004. So they finally launched them, and they've been up there. They're doing their job. Um, advertised, they're a a study on advanced uh, solar energy. Um, they are targetable. 
In other words, you can target them within that 35 millimeter circle and you can place multiple beams on the same target. Okay. All right. You, 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 I'm, not, I'm not so proud, I can say. You lost me a little bit there, but I know that some people in our group, like uh, like uh, Travis, uh, might be yeah. might be jiving with what you were saying. You know, we start to get to the ten millimeter, this and that kilowatt here, uh, sphere coming up from an yeah, antenna, no. yeah, and well, I'm like, most, all right. Most people, like your your cell phone, okay, uh, the peak radiation of your cell phone, uh, the peak ERP is five eighths of a watt, okay. Uh, a typical cell tower, the peak ERP of a cell tower is 12 watts. Um, a thousand watts. Um, let me do it this way. It's easier to explain the, the technology. In uh, recent times, you'll see uh, photographs of uh, telescopes showing pictures of the night sky in which you'll see uh, three or more uh, red it uh, looks like a laser pointer type beams going up from the telescope. Um, what they do is they actually measure the uh, diffraction of the Earth's atmosphere. And through adaptive optics, they provide uh, a clear picture um, at the lens. Uh, the, the lens is actually adaptive. So um, it allows them to look through the Earth's atmosphere, even though there's uh, currents and different uh, thermal layers providing reflection and dispersion. Um, from space, these devices are able to do the same thing. The cone beam actually uh, reflects the load back to the emitter, and then the emitter is able to send a modified beam down through that cone to hit the target. Now, the goal of this is to use the heat coming off from it uh, to run conventional uh, boiler assemblies, uh, just like you have a solar collector for like the Mojave 1 or Mojave 2 uh, solar farms. So you'll have a um, um, black body someplace that you're shining a microwave beam on to heat it up and use that heat to generate steam, the steam to generate electricity or process heat for manufacturing or anything like that. It's a really great idea because um, insulation, uh, that's not insulation, but insulation it, outside of the Earth's atmosphere is uh, about 1.3 kilowatt uh, per square meter. So you have quite a bit of energy up there available, and that is a good use of solar energy. Coming down through the atmosphere, um, there's a lensing effect uh, because of the water in the atmosphere where you're only getting about 7% of the energy that's at, available at, in orbit. So solar cells work great in orbit. On the ground, they work like they're useless, basically, in my opinion. Yeah, to me, to me, it sounded like you were talking about an amazing technology um, that could be used for energy, uh, but then it also sounded like you were talking about a direct energy weapon. It has it. It has that that capability. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's let's try to move along. There's yeah, so uh, just so you know, that's public. Uh, anybody can look up uh, Navy Research Laboratories, uh, Pram, P R A M, and they have uh, monthly and uh, quarterly 
uh, announcements and everything about it. It's actually a pretty cool, pretty cool project those guys are running. And like I said, all I did was heat sink. <laughs> and like he said, all he did was heat sink. Uh, what an amazing character this guy is. Uh, amazing life. So happy he joined me in the Smoke and Jays podcast studio. We are going to release part two very soon. We get uh, a little more ethereal, a little more um, into the woods on part two. Um, as always, this show, myself, my company is Smoke and Jays. Uh, so this sponsored, it's all self-funded. That is me. So if you are a midnight toker, a smoker in the truth-seeking community, head on over to smokinjays.com. Use coupon code HIPPIE, H-I-P-P-I-E, and you get 15% off your order. Again, that's my company. This isn't a grift. I'm not a patriot. I am a patriot, and uh, there's no... No harm in advertising my own company of 24 years. So again, if you're buying your smoking supplies from somebody else, hey, why not buy them from a fellow patriot, fellow truth seeker? Head on over to smokinjays.com. All right, part two of Dave42, my interview with him coming up. Again, you can go to the show notes and find links to where you can interact. You can be a part of the communities that Dave has come into.